So today we're continuing our Lenten series, Meals with Jesus, out of the Gospel of Luke, and we get to move forward to a second encounter with Jesus at a meal, this time at Simon the Pharisee's house here in Luke 7. I'm really grateful for this series as we get to see glimpses of Jesus and we learn about who he is, about the nature of his kingdom, about what it looks like to be his follower. It's a spectacular view and a challenging view. And uh, we follow a radical king, a beautiful king, who teaches us some wonderful things. And tonight, as we look at this story, it's a powerful story. It's no exception. I trust we'll be challenged by who we see Jesus to be in this story and our response to him. So I want to jump right in and set the scene and walk through the story together. We have Jesus and Simon and the woman, the three main characters. And the woman is a known sinner in in her town. Though we're not told explicitly, it's quite likely that Jesus has just preached a sermon on God's radical grace and mercy, and that he's declared something about God's kingdom and mercy and love, and that Simon and his friends wanted to hear more. And so Simon invites Jesus, this teacher, to his home for a banquet. It was not unusual for the theologically minded, as the Pharisees were, to have a dinner and to engage in theological discussion after the meal long into the evening. That would have been a regular practice. And so that's likely the occasion for this meal is a theological engagement with this teacher who'd been creating quite a stir. In those days, entertaining was a public affair. The guests would be welcomed into the court where the meal is served, and the gateway to that court would remain open. Servants are behind the guests, serving on them, or for them, and then the people of the village are able to wander in and around and observe, and in doing so, they're not thought to be obtrusive to the actual meal and banquet that is going on. So the first thing to notice about the story is what is not done. In their society, uh, there were certain host and guest obligations that everyone would know. These customs would include greeting the guests with a kiss on the cheek and washing the feet of the guests by the servant. In fact, guests would come in typically and approach a low table or just wooden dishes on the ground in the court and recline on low individual couches, leaning on an elbow with their feet behind them. And then as they sat down or leaned down like that, the servants would have access to their feet and would bring a bowl of water and a towel and wash their feet. Occasionally, guests would have their head anointed with oil as they came into this home. And these were the customs of proper hospitality. And they were often only intensified in situations where you had a guest of honor, like a teacher who had come into your midst, or a rabbi. While our customs are a bit different, we do have customs all the same. When somebody comes over to your house for dinner, you invite them in, and you take their coat from them and hang it up, and then you offer them something to drink, and you bring them to a place to sit, or you give them an appetizer. And if you were to skip any of those steps, it would seem a bit odd in some ways. If you missed those social cues that we would normally have as part of our code and custom. But that's exactly what Simon does to Jesus. He misses these things. He skips them. He snubs them. He violates all his obligations as a host. And by doing so, by refusing to wash his feet or to kiss him, he is elevating himself above Jesus in terms of status. A well-known traveler in the Middle East in the 19th century said it like this. Besides omitting water for his feet, Simon had given Jesus no kiss to receive a guest at the present day without kissing him on either cheek as he enters is a marked sign of contempt or at least a claim to a much higher social position. In contrast to Simon, the Pharisee, we have the woman, the sinner. We're told that she is a sinner. 
Most likely, scholars would say that she is a prostitute and has developed a reputation in that town that makes her a known entity. Someone that Simon would know who she was and that Simon's guests would also know and recognize who she was. She probably heard the sermon as well, was radically moved and changed and touched by this message of God's kingdom and his grace and his mercy. And being overwhelmed by that message, she follows Jesus to Simon's house and enters into the court standing behind the servants. And then she witnesses the insults that Jesus receives. And in what is probably an act of spontaneity, she springs into action. She can't help herself. Moved by love, moved by worship, by gratitude. She comes up to Jesus, wets his feet with her tears. She doesn't have a bowl of water, dries them with her hair. She doesn't have a towel. Kisses his feet, anoints his feet with this costly perfume. To anoint his head would have been unthinkable in that moment. So she anoints his feet. And this display of affection and care for this guest had to have caused an incredible scene. You think about awkward moments. This was a big awkward moment for those gathered around the table. Simon thinks he's seen what he needs to see. And he judges wrongly. And he thinks to himself, he doesn't say this out loud, but he thinks to himself, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. We all know who she is, that she is a sinner. The implication is he would never have let her get that close. He would have pushed her away the moment he got near to her. And so Simon's conclusion is that neither Jesus nor this woman are of God. He's not a prophet, and I know who she is. She's a sinner. In response, remember, Simon just thought this to himself. Probably Jesus could read his face just from what was going on. But Jesus tells a story. Verses 41 and 42. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One had 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon this time judges rightly. And he answers, I suppose it was the one who was forgiven more. I think the suppose is a kind of unwillingness to admit that he's maybe being set up here. But he gets the right response and Jesus affirms that response. You have judged rightly in verse 43. And then Jesus turns to the woman. And he gives a scathing rebuke to Simon in verses 44 through 47. And this was very taboo in a Middle Eastern home in the presence of your host. Not necessarily to disagree. That was the point of the theological discussion. But to publicly expose the wrong action was a big deal. But Jesus had a much bigger agenda in his life and ministry than just fitting in than following the social customs. And so he turns to the woman and he illustrates the parable that he has just spoken with Simon's actions and the woman's actions. And there's this constant refrain in verses 45, 44 through 47 where he says, you gave me no water, you gave me no kiss, you did not anoint my head, but she, but she, but she did all of these things. Simon has loved little 
For he has seen himself not needing forgiveness, or at least not very much forgiveness. The woman, on the contrary, Jesus says, she has loved much. For she, knowing how awful that she is, understands the massive amount that she has been forgiven. And that moves her to respond in love and worship and adoration to this man that she has encountered before. So in fact, the incident is quite revealing. It's just not revealing in the way that Simon thought it was revealing. Jesus says it actually reveals just the opposite of what he perceives. That Simon and his respectable friends are on the outside. And this woman, the sinner, is on the inside. She is a part of the fellowship of the forgiven that comprises the kingdom of God. She receives, in the end, words of assurance and blessing. Verse 50, your faith, that is your trust, you're clinging to me, you're putting your life in my hands, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She hadn't known much peace. We can be confident of that. She's given assurance and a word of blessing. Go in peace when Simon and his friends only receive a stern rebuke, a sharp teaching to expose their faulty actions and their faulty thinking. It's a powerful story. So what is it that we can take away from this story? If, like Simon, we see ourselves as basically upright and respectable, granted we probably know that we're not perfect, we will only see a small need for the forgiveness and mercy of God. And if God has only done a little for us, and this naturally follows, Jesus says, then our love for him, our worship of him, will be minimal. And this is contrasted, obviously, with the woman. She's not okay. She has nothing to boast about. She has nothing going for her, and she knows it. She's stuck in a dead-end life. And the only way out is by a God that she heard speaking in the person of Jesus, offering her mercy and grace and forgiveness, and welcome. And she encounters that grace, and she encounters that forgiveness, and she encounters that mercy. And it evokes in her a deep and costly love and worship of Jesus, rooted in gratitude and joy. Here's one of the main points of the story. None of us need just a little forgiveness. There are no Simons. None of us have been forgiven just 50 denarii compared to some who've been forgiven 500. We're all terminally ill. We're all notorious sinners. None of us just needs a Band-Aid or a crutch. We need a massive life-saving surgery. We need an organ transplant. In John 3, Jesus says, everyone who comes into God's kingdom must be born again. That's a complete and radical renewal of their lives. It's a complete upside down. It's a complete new thing that has to go on. In God's family, there are no Simons. There's no one who needs to be forgiven just a little. 
there are only sinners like this woman. That's it. So the question that this story of Jesus holds up before us is, do we know ourselves as sinners saved by God's grace and mercy as those in deep and desperate need of help from the outside? Or are we blind? The problem with Simon is he's blind. Why is he blind? What makes him blind? Simon's a social insider. Simon has a position of prestige and honor in his culture. He's well-educated. He probably went to the best schools. He got a good job when he got out of college. He's got some money in the bank. He owns a home. He has resources to throw a banquet. And in terms of social capital, he has a lot of it. And here's the problem. When we have those kinds of things in our lives, the tendency and the temptation is to begin to place the need of our being, the weight of our being, our sense of being okay or right or justified, our sense of being um, enough or all right, is, begins to rest on those things. Let me give you an image. Um, I... A couple of years ago, our family went out to Prince Edward Island in, in Canada, and there's a bridge that they just built five or ten years ago that spans like ten miles of open sea. And obviously that bridge stays up by pylon after pylon after pylon. And the challenge with the Simons in the world is that we have multiple pylons upon which we are resting our being. It may not be that we are rejecting God, But it may be that we have constrained God to be just one pylon among many. Alongside my degree, alongside my career, alongside my romantic life, alongside, and we fill in the blank. And we've got a whole host of these things that we begin to rest the weight of our being on. And suddenly we think we're okay. And Simon and the Pharisees, if we go on in Luke 18, they begin to think, you know, we do all the right things. We've got all the right things. We're in the upper crust of our culture And therefore, we're better than everybody else. Remember that Pharisee and that tax collector in Luke 18 who are standing before God. And he says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector. Because I fast twice a day. I give a tithe of everything I have. I have done all the right things. And I've got all these pylons that I can rest on. And it's those things that can begin to blind us to our need. And they blinded Simon in this case. But contrast that with the woman. This unseemly heroine of the story. Her need was blatant. It was obvious. It was incapable of being concealed. There were no other pylons for her bridge to stand on. In fact, it was likely that her bridge was just in shambles. And when she heard the message of grace, the message of this kingdom that God had come to bring through Jesus, she heard of a way out, a way to stand, a way to be risen up, a way to rest her whole being on this one, one thing. A God who would receive her, 
A God who would say, it's okay, I know you've messed up. I know you've been maybe the victim of injustice. I know your life feels like it's going nowhere. But I'm going to hold you. I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to be a rock for you. And give you a purpose and a vision and a future and a hope. And you can rest on me. And she jumps at that opportunity. That's why she's in this story. She's heard something. She's there at Simon's house. She jumps into the scene because she knows that her whole life makes sense only because of the forgiveness and mercy of a loving God who would not give up on a person like her. And she wasn't blinded by her respectability. Some of us here are social insiders. We're respectable. We're educated. We have honor and status in the eyes of our world, and we're seeking that. That's important. And the question is, have those things blinded us to our utter and complete need for God? Is it possible, and Lent is a great season for this as a community to reflect on this, is it possible to see through our successes to our depth of need, what C.S. Lewis called our growing awareness that our whole being by its very nature is one vast need, incomplete, preparatory, empty yet cluttered, crying out for him who can untie things that are now knotted together and tie up things that are still dangling loose. Can we stop leaning on those other pylons that the world says matter and entrust ourselves to God alone and rest on Him alone. Some of us here today will identify more with the woman. We're painfully aware of our need. Our lives haven't exactly worked out in the way that they were supposed to. We've made choices, perhaps habitually, that have hurt the people that we love and that have left our lives in pieces and shattered and our dreams and hopes diminished. In fact, we may not have really any hope at all anymore. The world might be really dark. And we know we're broken and we're desperate for help. We know that we need help. Have we, like this woman, heard the offer of Jesus for forgiveness? For life? For a new identity? For a new family? For a fresh start? To enter into his kingdom. For social insiders and social outcasts, for the haves and the have-nots, our world is constantly dividing us up. All of us are sinners in need of rescue. And Jesus stands ready to forgive and to heal and to welcome and to bless. And he took upon himself our shortcomings, our sins, our shame at the cross. And there he terminated their power against us. He put an end to sin's ceaseless accusation in our lives. To that ongoing murmur of self-reproach inside of us. And he opened up a way for us to live. And to live fully and freely. And to live in love and truth. To live in hope and in holiness. And I should say that being in one category or the other. Or somewhere in between. Does not mean that we are automatically right or wrong with God. That we automatically understand the depth of our need for his forgiveness and the amazing magnitude of his gift. I've known very wealthy, successful people whose lives are marked by an awareness of their sin, by a real deep humility, and by an understanding that all that they enjoy is simply a gift from God 
and not the just payment for their great hard work or moral character. And who have radically devoted themselves to following this man, Jesus. And I've known social outsiders, people whose lives are in shambles, who will not give up their pride and their personal honor and cry out to God for help. Wherever we are on that spectrum, Jesus still issues to us an invitation that we are called to accept and embrace or to refuse and reject. But when we accept this invitation, when we come to him in the magnitude of our need, when we throw our lives upon him fully and exclusively, when we remember that all those other pylons don't bear any weight, and they certainly don't determine our actions, the company that we keep, the love that we give, when we throw ourselves upon him, we find his gracious embrace his complete forgiveness, his full welcome. And it's only then that our hearts will be ignited. This woman's heart was alive. Is your heart alive? It was overflowing with love. And in closing, I want to leave you with a few things that we see from this woman's response. Just as we think about in Lent, God, have I met you in this way? God, have I understood the depth of my need for forgiveness like this woman did? Is my life completely built upon that and nothing else? Then I want us to see these three things about this woman. The first thing is that her heart is in fact alive. And how do we know that? How do we know that her worship and love of Jesus is flowing from the heart? Because she's in tears. She's weeping. She's weeping at the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we're all equally emotional. Some of you cry a lot. Some of you hardly ever cry. But what I am saying is that an encounter with Jesus, the radical Jesus of the Bible, will move your heart. It may not move it every day or every week or even every month or year, but it will move your heart as it moved this woman. And when it does, then the second and third thing will show. The, the second thing is, that it move, first it moves her heart, but the second thing is it leads her to a materially costly worship. She brings this expensive jar of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet. Our following of Jesus is to be costly. And yet it's a cost that we don't give begrudgingly but we give freely and fully and we run to the opportunity. If our Christian discipleship is costing us only an hour or two on a Sunday, but nothing else, then it's quite likely that we haven't encountered the God of forgiveness, that we haven't entered the fellowship of the forgiven. But when we have encountered Jesus in that way, then not only will our hearts be stirred, but our hearts will stir us then to action that is costly in our worship and devotion to him that will be reflected in tangible ways. Perhaps in hours of service of those less fortunate or in giving substantially to the work of the gospel locally and abroad or in doing a job that no one else wants to do. In all kinds of ways, our worship of Jesus will cost us something, but that something will be gladly given. And then the third thing is that her worship, her heart-moved response is not only costly, but it's also materially, but it's costly socially. 
She breaks the social customs. Because the kingdom of God turns everything upside down. She jumps into a situation that she has no business being in and she risks great mocking and great shame by jumping into that situation in response to the Jesus that met her. She throws caution to the wind. Does our love for Jesus ever lead us to break social norms? You might ask, well, why should it? And here's why. Because the kingdom of God will always come into conflict with every culture. And every set of customs that will force people into actions that are untrue of the kingdom or unfaithful to the kingdom. For example, when someone is making a scene on the tea by shouting or begging in your tea car, the social norm, right, is that we ignore that person. We look the other way, maybe roll our eyes in disgust and keep to our book. And I want to say to you that I often follow that norm. But I want to suggest, isn't it possible that this love that we've found in Jesus leads us then to break with social customs and go and encounter that person, speak to that person, maybe put our hand on their shoulder. Maybe we'll be rejected. Maybe we'll be laughed at by everybody else on the car, but we're following this one who's radically met us and beginning to spread that love in a different way. Or maybe we break social norms by talking about Jesus in contexts where that's completely taboo to do so. I'm not saying that we break social norms just to be obnoxious. That would be problematic. But then in following the Spirit in spontaneous worship and love that we might begin to speak to our coworker or our neighbor about the love that we've encountered in Jesus in a way that maybe makes things uncomfortable and certainly is taking a risk and going beyond what's socially acceptable. But because of this radical encounter with Jesus, we don't care. She didn't care. Her life had been changed. God's kingdom people, what I'd like to call the fellowship of the forgiven, will be moved in the heart. We'll offer worship to Jesus that is costly both materially and socially. Because we have found something so much more beautiful and greater. We agree together with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, died in the late 18th century, who said this at the end of his life, or near the end of his life. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Simon didn't know that. This woman knew that through and through. And it burned to life inside of her and overflowed out of her into worship and love and service of Jesus. May it do so in our own lives as well. May we be a people who live the way this woman lived because we've been forgiven. And that's all that matters. Amen.